You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. LNG is crazy. You liquefy natural gas, you put it in a giant freezer, you freeze it, you put it in a ship, you bring it to Japan, you put it in a toaster, you turn it back into gas, you put it in a power plant, you create electricity. That's crazy. It's the first energy crisis of the energy transition age. For October 12th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. One year ago, veteran energy reporter and editor Will Kennedy, who is now executive editor for Energy and Commodities at Bloomberg News, joined us in episode 158 to discuss what at the time we called a global energy crunch. Now, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent reshuffling of the global energy trade, that crunch has evolved into a global energy crisis, putting energy consumers into severe financial distress and forcing governments around the world, especially in Europe, to intervene in all sorts of unprecedented ways. Predictably, apologists for the fossil fuel incumbency have tried to blame the energy transition for the crisis, but the facts are plain. This crisis is principally the result of too much of the world having become too reliant on natural gas, and of one of its principal suppliers, Russia, deciding to use its gas as a political weapon. But that's just the root of the problem. It has now expanded into a tar baby of consequences, entangling all fuels and most of the world's producers and consumers in its wretched clutches, and driving up prices for all sorts of energy, food, and other goods. And it will likely be years before the world can pull out of this crisis and get back to normality. It has really upended everything. So this seemed like a good time to have Will back on the show to review what's happening, what governments are doing about it, and to try to peer into the murky darkness ahead and see what's coming. It's an extremely complex situation, so get yourself a nice cuppa and listen closely to this very dense conversation. Also, be sure to log into our website using your subscriber credentials and check out the more than 100 source references in our show notes for this episode. A lot of research went into this one. As we will show, this crisis will ultimately accelerate the energy transition because that is truly the only way out of this mess. But it won't be a straight path, it won't be quick, and it won't be easy. Then in the news segment, we'll review the very latest interventions in the UK and across Europe to reduce the pain caused by high energy prices. We'll see how floating LNG terminals are being deployed to provide Europe with alternate import facilities for gas. We'll check out an historic package of new climate and energy laws in California. And we'll see how a major American city is stepping up to the energy transition. But before we go to the interview, we'd like to extend a warm welcome to some of our latest group subscribers. Accenture is a global management consulting firm headquartered in the United States. LC Energy is a management consulting firm headquartered in England. St. Lawrence University is a private liberal arts college in Canton, New York, which hosted me for several speaking engagements last fall. And the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania is an incubator for energy policy innovation. Welcome all. We are so pleased to have you on board. And now our conversation with Will Kennedy, recorded September 7th, 2022. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Will, to the Energy Transition Show. Great to be here, Chris. 
You know, it's been almost exactly one year since you last joined us on the show in episode 158, and you opened up that conversation by suggesting that we're experiencing, quote, the first energy crisis of the energy transition age. That seemed like a bit of a bold call at the time to me, and my research for that episode was mainly centered on natural gas prices in the UK, at least at first, but then that expanded into what was already starting to look like a global energy crunch involving all fuels and really much of the world. Russia had been accused of weaponizing its natural gas supply and deliberately holding it back in order to pressure the UK into supporting its new $11 billion Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. But then five months later, Russia actually invaded Ukraine, The subsequent reshuffling of energy buyers and sellers hugely exacerbated all of the existing dynamics of that crunch and just added many more. Now the global energy crunch is really starting to look more like a global energy crisis, as you suggested. It's hard to even know where to begin (laughs) to tackle this subject now. I mean, this is just mind-bogglingly complex, but perhaps you'd like to offer some opening thoughts just to kind of frame things up a bit. Sure. I mean, it's been an astonishing year. The first and perhaps most obvious thing to say is that the crisis is still ongoing and it's become far more intense. A year ago, many people, and you raised an eyebrow when we talked, might have balked at calling it a crisis. I don't think anyone would quibble now. Yeah. Many of the trends we discussed a year ago have intensified. Most importantly, Russia's use of natural gas as an energy weapon. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've seen Western countries retaliate with energy sanctions and profound impacts on trading patterns, as you say. In some respects, the energy crisis has become an energy war. Hmm. Finally, the cost of energy and energy security has exploded as a political and economic issue. Energy has been one of the drivers of the surge in global inflation, and now it's eliciting an enormous fiscal response as European governments cushion their voters from the impact of higher prices. Certainly no shortage of things to discuss, Chris. Yeah, and we're going to get to that point about inflation and the effects on currencies and all that stuff later on. But let's just start with some of the basic details here, because there are just so many aspects of this to cover. And I suppose it just makes sense to start with the natural gas trade, since that not only kicked off the crisis, but continues to cause numerous ripples across the global energy system, especially for gas-fired power generation. If Russia had hoped to persuade the UK to approve operation of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline by holding back some gas supply through its other pipeline, pipelines, that strategy clearly backfired. Not only is Nord Stream 2 now looking like it'll never go into service, making it an $11 billion boondoggle, Russia cut its gas delivery through Nord Stream 1 to 20% of its capacity and then closed it for quote-unquote maintenance and then just recently shut it down entirely, demanding that the West lift its sanctions before they will restart it. Power prices surged to just eye-watering levels. It seems Russia has tried to prevent its major European buyers, including Germany and the UK, from refilling their gas storage before winter in order to exact as much pain on them as possible. But the EU28 gas buyers have worked aggressively to refill their storage facilities, and those are now at levels above their historical averages. Still, it's not like the SPR. If Russian pipeline deliveries cease entirely, the EU and Britain will have to cut their consumption significantly this winter, won't they? Yes, they will. It's good that storage has filled up, as you suggest, Chris, early on in the crisis or early on this summer. EU policymakers set that target to fill up the storage, and they've done that through importing more LNG and diverting gas from elsewhere. But it's an issue of stock and flow. Those stocks will help, especially in the first half of the winter. But in any winter, typically Europe relies on a continuing flow of gas through pipelines from Russia. Now, it looks like almost none of that is going to come this winter. So once those stocks have run down, 
we will be short of gas. And that's something that Europe's going to have to grapple with by reducing consumption. And there have been signs that that's happening already. And if it gets really bad and we have a particularly cold winter, then we will have to talk about some form of energy rationing. And at the most extreme example, it's not inconceivable that we would have to have some form of rolling blackout. I think the short story here is that because of those stockpiles, the first half of the winter is not going to be as dicey as the second half of the winter. If we get a really acute crisis, it's likely to become in early 2023, once those stocks have been run down, and it's we're learning to live without the stocks or any flow of Russian gas. Yeah. And in case people are wondering, LNG cannot ride to the rescue on such a time frame. No, that's right. So there's an infrastructure problem Europe has here. Europe has historically been a fairly major importer of LNG. Spain, France, Britain in particular, among the major European economies, have had lots of LNG import capacity. And Britain, for example, relies on LNG for an awful lot of its imported gas. But there are other parts of Europe, most importantly Germany, which doesn't have any LNG import capacity at all. Now it's moving quickly to fix that problem. It will have a temporary floating LNG facility in the second half of the winter. But again, it's not going to be enough capacity to replace what it's lost through the Nord Stream pipeline. And there are also capacity constraints on the other side. The USA has ramped up hugely its exports of LNG, and a lot of that LNG is crossing the Atlantic and coming to Europe. But there are only so many export terminals in the USA, and they're working at full capacity. And there are other parts of the world which also rely on LNG. So there's a lot of competition for those cargoes. So yes, LNG has definitely been part of the answer. We would have been in a much worse position without it. But it can't, for now, fill the whole gap, Chris. Right, right. So the reduced supply of Russian gas has produced an incredibly volatile market. I don't think I've ever seen the gas market this volatile, or for that matter, the power market, and resulting in a lot of pain for its consumers. In mid-August, baseload German power prices hit record highs for November and December of 2022, for the fourth quarter of 2023, for the first quarter of 2024, and a full year 2025 and 2026 contracts, all record highs. In late August, power for 2023 delivery rose to a whopping 1,050 euros per megawatt hour and then crashed to half of that two days later. (laughs) Wholesale power prices in the Netherlands for December also reached over 1,000 euros per megawatt hour before falling. Benchmark European natural gas futures had risen to a record 340 euros per megawatt hour before crashing by 30%. But still, that's 10 times higher than they were at the start of 2021. And in the UK, prices were high with day-ahead wholesale electricity markets pushing 575 euros per megawatt hour in mid-August. The impact on consumers has obviously become a major concern. In late August, Ofgem, Britain's energy regulator, announced that it was raising the cap for annual electricity and gas bills to £3,549 a year for customers paying in cash, more than triple where it was before the pandemic and more than 75% higher than where prices were in August. But analysts at Citigroup think it could even go higher. They think £5,800 in January, an outfit called Cornwall Insight, sees prices potentially hitting over £6,000 next April. I've seen reports of UK customers shopping for new utility contracts and finding them starting at a shocking £10,000 a year. Meanwhile, in France, they're looking probably the worst of all. More than half of its nuclear fleet has been out of service for most of the year, as we've reported numerous times on this show. 
and relief is really nowhere in sight. The National Utility EDF announced in late August that it's still working through corrosion problems with some of its reactors, and it had to push back the dates they're expected to be able to return to service, with some 3 gigawatts less than expected in October, and at least 2 gigawatts less in November. In response, electricity prices in France for the November 2022 to January 2023 period traded at over 2,000 euros per megawatt hour, with peak prices in the November to December time frame pushing 3,000 per megawatt hour. (laughs) So that compares with the 2010 to 2020 average of around 41 euros per megawatt hour. In other words, these electricity prices are over 70 times higher than the average as of two years ago. Now, This situation is changing quickly, so the data that we cite today will almost certainly be out of date by the time this episode launches, and I've done the best I can to try to at least provide some context here, but what kind of prices are you seeing on the Bloomberg terminal for gas or gas-fired power generation across Europe right now? It's not quite as extreme as some of those prices that you cite there, and I think that the extraordinary volatility has been one of the standout features of this crisis and actually shows some of the distress that financial markets have been put under by the extreme events that we've been seeing. It's also worth pointing out, Chris, that some of those very marginal prices, some of those extreme prices that we see in France, a lot of people won't be paying those prices. It's what people are having to pay to cover particular positions for those particular periods. But the fact that people are paying four-figure prices for power, I don't think many people ever expected to see that. And as you say, historically, if we look at the German power for the year ahead, which is probably the most important market for electricity in Europe, it sets a benchmark for Europe's biggest industrial economy and what companies are having to pay. Over the last decade, that's been around 50 euros megawatt hour or well below. So even free figures is pretty extraordinary. Where are we now? Well, things have calmed down a little bit. I think we can go into the reasons for that, but it's a lot to do with stronger policy intent from the European Commission, I would argue. And it's a lot to do with policymakers standing behind the market to ensure liquidity, which is making people more confident to trade. But just in terms of prices of where we are, Dutch front month gas, which is the benchmark for Europe, the TTF benchmark, which is traded and delivered in Holland, is trading at just over 200 euros a megawatt hour, about 216 right now. That's a long way off the highs above 300 euros we saw in August. But to offer you some perspective, it's still the equivalent of about more than $400 a barrel. Mm. And I think that's a very stark illustration of the challenge the continent faces and just how expensive energy is for Europe right now and, frankly, catastrophic impact that could have on the European economy. If we turn to power prices, I talked briefly about German year-ahead power, and that gives, I think, a good proxy for the cost for Europe's industrial economy. It was 50 for most of the last decade. We got above 100 last year. As you said, it hit an astonishing 1,000 euros a megawatt hour late last month. Right now, it's about 500. I can just check quickly on my Bloomberg. So we're 527, which, you know, again, is 10 times historical levels. So a huge change for the continent. So some of the complete craziness has come out of the market. But I don't think anyone should think that we're anywhere close to out of the woods or the crunch is over. We're still talking about very extreme prices. Yeah. Well, just to highlight how much pain this is causing, a detailed analysis by Carbon Brief in mid-August found that rising bills would push two-thirds of UK households into fuel poverty by January. 
partly because about 85% of UK homes use gas-fired boilers for heating, as compared with, say, less than 50% in France or Germany, and about 40% of the UK's electricity is generated by gas-fired power plants, as compared with 15% in Germany and less than 6% in France. So average annual energy bills were forecast to exceed 3,500 pounds, or a bit over $4,000, from October 1st, when a new price cap was supposed to kick in, that would equate to about $350 a month or more than 11% of a household's median disposable income in the UK. Carbon Brief estimates that on the whole, household energy costs would reach 231 billion pounds, or almost 10% of the UK's GDP. So I suppose it's no surprise that just two days before we recorded this interview (laughs) in this ever fast-changing world we're dealing with here, the administration of incoming Prime Minister Liz Truss announced that it was intervening, sidelining the regulator Ofgem, and would charge households a reduced rate for their energy, with the government guaranteeing financing to cover the difference. Now, that plan could cost as much as £130 billion over the next 18 months. However, the details are yet to be disclosed, at least as of today. And another £40 billion is being considered for small businesses. Together, as Bloomberg's Javier Blas points out, those subsidies are equal to the annual budget of the National Health Service at more than 5% of GDP. So that's just a remarkable intervention. But that is in keeping with the command capitalism theme of episode 182, in which I concluded by musing whether regulators would be able to even remain relevant in the face of this crisis. And I guess the answer for Ofgem is no. Gas costs are causing damage on this side of the pond as well, according to an article by Bloomberg's Mark Chediak, dated August 23rd, about one in six American homes have fallen behind on their utility bills. The number of residential customers behind on payments with California utility PG&E jumped more than 40% since February 2020. In New Jersey, the number of customers of utility PSCG who are at least 90 days late on payments is up more than 30% just since March, and on and on. This is really starting to look like a major economic hit right across the West, potentially forcing many people into poverty or homelessness, isn't it? Yes, I think that's a fair description, Chris. The COVID pandemic is barely behind us, and in Europe at least, we seem to be facing another extraordinary economic, social, and political crisis. Left unchecked, it's going to hit the most vulnerable hardest, the poor, the sick, the old, and it will divert a huge chunk of GDP into paying energy costs, forcing retrenchments by consumers. If those bills that you mentioned, the £3,500 or higher in the UK, are allowed to stand, that's going to decimate discretionary spending on things like pubs, restaurants, tourism. And remember, this is against a background where the cost of other essentials, especially food, has been rising fast, partly as a impact of energy prices feeding through the system and partly because of other disruptions caused by the invasion of Ukraine. Now, the interventions that you mention, and we'll get a precise readout of what the trust government plans to do tomorrow, could take a lot of sting out of it, frankly speaking. The proposal that we've seen is to cap prices at where they are now, which is about £1,600 per household, obviously much higher than they were previously, but perhaps more manageable. And that will both take a lot of the sting out from Cuba and prevent some of the really bad effects that we've been discussing here. And may, if it's depending on how it's structured, take some sting out of the inflationary and economic crisis. But what it will do, and you talked about how big a chunk some of this is of GDP. I mean, we're talking about if you include 
what they're talking about for households and what they're talking about for businesses, you're talking at somewhere between 170 and 200 billion pounds. Now, that is upwards of 5% of British GDP. It's an extraordinary hit for the British balance sheet to take in one go. You know, you can argue it's necessary. This is warlike spending. We've got to make sure that we're able to give Ukraine the support it needs, perhaps, I think Liz Truss would argue. But there's no doubt that it's an extraordinary intervention, which probably only has its parallels in wartime. It's more than we spent on furloughing people in the pandemic. And it's going to have impact on on Britain's fiscal position for years to come. So whichever way it goes, whether you let the price rises feed through and you cause immense pain for consumers, or you don't, and you take it onto the balance sheet of the state, either way, it's a crisis that's going to have immense ramifications for the politics and economics of Britain and other European countries for many years to come. Javier has been a great chronicler of this energy crisis and other energy crises before this. It was a great column that Javier wrote. He went out and did some reporting here. He got onto a call where energy traders speak to the national grid that manages the network in the UK. And he heard the kind of questions that they were asking. Are you wargaming possible options when cross-border trading collapses under the security supply pressures this winter? Can we have a session where we talk through emergency arrangement? If a stress event is active in both gas and power, how do electricity system operators and gas controls communicate what stress takes priority? And I think that really shows how serious this could get. Going back to my comments further back about the second half of the winter, I think a lot of people who understand how the power and gas market works in Europe are very worried that we will simply not have enough energy to go around. And what we see there is traders trying to understand how the people who manage networks, the people who are responsible for balancing the grid will cope with that situation. And I think that column was a brilliant illustration of just how severe the crisis was. And it was written a few weeks ago. And I think in that period since, policymakers, as they've come back from their summer holidays, as they look towards the winter, have started to grapple with how big a problem it is. And you can see how big a problem it is by the scale of the interventions they're proposing, not just to support households through capping bills, but also through some of the interventions that in the market that the EU is proposing at the meeting that it's holding this Friday of energy ministers to try and get a grip on the situation. There's been a process in in the European Commission in Brussels to forge a coordinated response. I think that the hugely elevated prices that we saw in August which we discussed earlier, Chris, were really a wake-up call to European policymakers. It's possible to put up with or work through a few hundred euros a megawatt hour. It's extremely painful. But when they saw prices hitting four figures, I think they realized that the, A, the market was not working very well, and B, they had to get a grip of the situation. Now, when we look at these prices, they do reflect the fundamentals of the situation, but I think they're exacerbated by some structural factors in the market. When people take a position in a market and prices rise, they have to post collateral, a so-called margin call. And what a lot of people were finding, traders and particularly utilities, is as prices exploded, they were having to post more and more margin. And that scared people out of the market and there was a loss of liquidity and some of these price moves were exaggerated. So you've seen two things happen this week. First of all, you've seen a concerted effort by European governments to get behind 
utilities in the market and say, we will support them. We will make sure that they have the financial backstop they need to make those margin calls. We saw Nordic governments inject 33 billion euros of liquidity into the market to make sure that the market up there functions properly. We've seen Germany bail out Uniper, which was the biggest supplier of Russian gas into Europe. It got into financial trouble because of these margin calls. The German government has backed it up. We've seen utilities in Austria and Switzerland get the same backing. And that's been very important, I think, because it's convinced other players that counterparty risk is not such a big issue, that governments are standing behind the utilities in particular, and that they can trade. And so you've seen some of the very extreme volatility come out of the market. The second thing that we've seen as a policy response this week is serious discussion about what the Commission can do. And Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, unveiled a five-point plan this morning. I think there are a couple which are really, really interesting. So one thing that policymakers have been focused on is the way that the European power market is structured. It's gas prices that set power prices. Now, Putin's actions have sent gas prices stratospherically higher as he's increased his stranglehold and actually basically effectively stopped the flow of Russian gas into Europe. And that's, as we've discussed earlier in this podcast, forced power higher. But of course, a lot of the power produced in Europe does not come from gas. It comes from renewables. It comes from nuclear power. It comes from hydropower. It comes from coal power. And a lot of those sources have much lower costs the price of fossil fuel does not have a direct impact on the cost of generating wind power, for example. So one proposal that's going to be discussed at tomorrow's meeting is to cap the price of power for everything that isn't produced from gas. And that would be done at 200 euros a megawatt hour. Still a very high price, but a lot lower than some of the prices we have. And by doing that, the aim is to constrain the profits, which have frankly been very high of those people who own non-gas power generation and to better reflect the costs of generating power. It won't apply to all the power generated in Europe. Coal power, for example, is going to be more expensive than that cap, and they'll have to work out how to deal with that. And obviously, we do use gas to generate a lot of power in Europe, but it may help drag down the price of power. The other important measure I think we're seeing is really strenuous efforts in the European community to set targets to reduce power. Now, obviously, prices have been doing that a lot, and we can get onto that, Chris, about demand destruction and what's going on in industrial Europe. But I think that policy will have to drive a lot of that, encouraging people to use less power, thinking about how industry is using power, energy-saving measures like turning lights off in public buildings, using street lights less often, big things, small things. There's a concerted effort. So some of the complete almost panic in the market has come out because of those two things, the liquidity backstop that I discussed and this plan that the European Union is putting together. And that's definitely changed the picture a little bit. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily 
easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The day after we recorded this interview, the UK launched a $46 billion fund to provide energy traders liquidity to deal with massive margin calls and prevent a so-called Lehman Brothers moment. Sweden had already made $23 billion available in credit guarantees, and Finland set up a $10 billion program of loans and guarantees. Denmark followed soon after with a $13.5 billion facility of its own. Germany loosened its insolvency rules to give struggling businesses more breathing room instead of just shutting down. And the government of the UK's new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, announced the details of its package of measures to address the energy crisis, including a £2,500-a-year cap on average household energy bills starting in October, well below the £3,548 they would have paid without the intervention, in addition to the £400 subsidy that had already been announced. The program will last for two years, and businesses will get what the government described as an equivalent intervention, lasting an initial six months. The government estimates that it will reduce inflation by 4 to 5 percentage points from a peak that the Bank of England says may be above 13% and others say may be much higher. Even with the support, domestic UK bills this winter are expected to be about triple the level of a year ago. Bloomberg estimates that the total cost of the package to UK taxpayers could be as much as £200 billion were the intervention to last 18 months, depending on gas prices. The package would also offer fixed prices to renewable and nuclear power generators as an alternative to their existing lucrative renewable obligation contracts, as we discussed in the interview. It would also lift a ban on fracking that had been in place since 2019 because of the impact on the countryside and potential to cause earthquakes. However, I do not expect this to result in any actual shale gas production in Britain anytime soon, for reasons I explained in News Item 4 of Episode 169. Even the founder of Quadrilla, the only company to actually attempt fracking in the UK, said the geology there is too challenging, calling the government's support mere soundbites. And it certainly won't reduce gas prices. See also the Carbon Brief analysis linked into the show notes. The UK government's package also aims to speed up nuclear power projects, which would require huge taxpayer support and would be several times more expensive than investing in efficiency and renewables instead. And it aims to license at least 100 more oil and gas drilling projects in the North Sea, which may or may not encourage operators to commence actual drilling there. Unfortunately, the package is entirely focused on energy supply and customer bills, rather than encouraging conservation. Item 2. 
As of this interview on September 7th, European countries have announced their own relief packages for soaring energy costs. Italy offered a 17 billion euro aid package, announced its intention to impose a windfall profits tax on energy companies, and promoted a Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.